Welcome to the Nutrition Science Podcast, where we help you cut through the noise and make informed, science-based decisions about nutrition and your health. How's it going, everyone? Welcome back to another episode of the Nutrition Science Podcast. I am your host, Dr. Adrian Chavez, and in this episode, I'm going to be doing something a little bit different. So I'm going to be publishing an episode where I was interviewed about the topic of insulin resistance. This was from the Where Optimal Meets Practical podcast. This was my friend Jordan Lips who was interviewing me. I think it was a good episode. We covered a lot of ground when it comes to insulin resistance. This is a topic that I definitely plan to discuss in the future, but I think this episode gives a really good overview. Jordan asked great questions. And I'm confident that this is going to be a very valuable episode. So without further ado, I'm going to go ahead and clip to the episode. Adrian, what's going on, man? Welcome to the show. Happy to have you. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm excited. I have been a recent new follower of yours over the past maybe a couple of months, and you put out some seriously really, really good content. I first started following you for some of the uh, gut-related content, and I feel like you, when you and I were talking uh, on, in DMs, that that's something that people oft, often want you to come on the podcast and talk about. Um, we're going to talk a little bit more about insulin resistance and how you become insulin resistant, why you become insulin resistant, how can we become more insulin sensitive, how much do we have to worry about it, and this like crusade of like normal people wearing CGMs. Um, but give us a little backstory. I don't know too much about you other than you put out really good content and you're a smart dude. So give us a little backstory of like, you know, whatever, your academic background and how you got to be where you are now. Yeah, so um, it started with uh, me getting a bachelor's and master's degree in exercise science, and I was primarily focused on exercise science, wanted to train athletes, you know, nutrition was a part of that. So I read a lot of in nutrition. I thought I knew a bit about nutrition at that point, but I definitely didn't. Um, and, and there was a point during my master's degree that I had some health issues and, and I just got more into nutrition from a, from a health standpoint instead of like a performance standpoint. And I was really fascinated by how complicated nutrition really is, how, how much information is there. I, I, and I saw that as like a, a more interesting pursuit for my PhD. Uh, so I, I kind of shifted from there, started taking graduate nutrition classes, went and applied for uh, a nutrition PhD program. There was only one that I wanted to go to. And I, luckily I got in. Um, and, and the reason was because I wanted to study insulin sensitivity, insulin resistance, chronic cardiovascular metabolic disease. And that was the, the place for me to do that. Um, and so I went to Arizona state, went there for four years, got my PhD was focused on, um, insulin resistance. And then what we can do, like from a nutrition exercise standpoint, uh, supplements, lifestyle interventions, and like, how do we translate this stuff into actual real life? Like we know, we know what works, but how do we actually get people to do this stuff? How do we, you know, get them at the right time, like at their doctor's office and stuff like that. So a lot of that, a lot of my research was on how do we translate this stuff into actual, um, meaningful practice. And that's where, um, that's where a lot of my content comes from is I've, my focus is not necessarily like the science is great. And I like talking about the science, but how do we actually get people to do stuff that's actually going to have a positive effect on their health? It's funny. You had mentioned that like, uh, you were excited when you started looking into nutrition, not that it was so complicated, but there was so much to know. And I felt the same way, just and in a good way, enlightened and excited about all this new information that I was learning. And do you feel like 
it actually does come full circle sometimes where you're like, look at how much information there is. And then you get to the point where you're actually sitting in front of an individual and you're like, actually, it's not so simple. I don't mean to, to make it like a, to just uh, make it super reductionist about tiny little, you know, couple things. But do you feel like you have this big, crazy, complex world of nutrition that could be in some ways boiled down to like some big rocks? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, most of nutrition is boiled down and that's, that's what I try to communicate really well on my Instagram. It's like most of nutrition is, you know, there's some main things that pretty much apply to everyone that, that need to be, um, you know, addressed and understood by each individual. And outside of that though, I mean that, yeah, they, you can get into the weeds all day about, you know, this little variation can improve this mechanism and potentially, uh, you know, improve this disease state, but, overall what improves our health is is generally the same you know same principles yeah it's funny i didn't actually know that you did your phd on anything remotely regarding insulin resistance that turns out to be a turns out to be a good person to have on podcast that's that's awesome yeah (laughs) yeah definitely cool let's let's jump into it let's talk a little bit about what what is insulin resistance let's do a little bit of a breakdown of what's like actually happening at the cell um and then i'll just kind of follow up with like how does somebody know that they are insulin resistant yeah. Yeah. So insulin resistance is, I mean, the, what you hear online is typically a very, um, a, a not accurate way that people are describing insulin resistance. So insulin resistance happens at different tissues. It's not like you're insulin resistant or you're not like it turns, you know, it's not a switch. It's a, you become more insulin resistant or insulin sensitive in different tissues. And this can happen, uh, at different times. So your pancreas, your liver, your muscle, your, your blood vessels, they all, they all respond to the hormone of insulin. And just to kind of back up a little bit, insulin is a, um, you know, is a hormone that, that has various functions throughout the body. One of the primary ones that most people know about is the disposal of glucose. It helps get glucose out of our cells into other tissues, but it also helps with nitric oxide production, helps with um, several other factors, growth hormone uh, stimulation and, and other factors throughout the body. So insulin is very important. The issue is that when some of us, um, we, we, become insulin resistant. So our body needs to put out more insulin and too high levels of insulin chronically can lead to negative health effects. And the reason that people become quote unquote insulin resistant at various tissues is because of excess energy built up in those tissues. Like it's really that simple. Um, and, and, you know, it can become, you know, you can talk about some complicated mechanisms and things like that, but it's really excess energy for the most part. It's, it's, excess fatty acids that accumulate in your liver, in your muscle, um, in your, in, in other tissues. And when those fatty acids accumulate and they interfere with insulin signaling, they're basically telling your, uh, your body, Hey, we don't need any more energy. We have enough. And so the body as a protective mechanism doesn't bring in any more glucose and it becomes, it, it stops responding to the signal of insulin. So that's what, you know, and that happens when it happens at various tissues, um, the, the effects are different. So in muscle, um, muscle is where most of our glucose, like when we have glucose in our blood, most of it is being disposed at, at the muscle. And so when we become insulin resistant at the level of the muscle, um, we are just leaving more of that glucose circulating in our bloodstream. When we become insulin resistant at the liver, the liver actually produces glucose. Um, and when we become insulin resistant at the liver, that can actually lead to it continuing to produce glucose instead of shutting down that production after we eat a meal or when we're fasting. So if you're insulin resistant at the level of the liver, 
that can lead to increased fasting glucose because your, your um, liver continues to produce glucose when it shouldn't because insulin would normally tell, tell the liver to stop producing that glucose. Let's do a, a quick, very general, like I was thinking like a quick magic school bus breakdown of like the <laughs> yeah. journey of a carbohydrate from like ingestion <laughs> to disposal in a muscle cell, let's say very quickly. Yeah. Yeah. So when you eat a carbohydrate, it's going to get broken down in the gut. It's going to get absorbed through the small intestine. It's going to get released into the bloodstream as glucose. It's going to circulate until it finds a place, a, a home where it needs to be used for energy. Most of the glucose is used in various muscle tissue. So um, that's where it gets disposed of. So that's why insulin resistance Usually when people are referring to insulin resistance, they're, they're usually referring to the level of the muscle and the muscle is, it's because the muscle is so important in, in glucose control overall. And that's why exercise, you know, and we'll talk about this a little bit more later, but that's why exercise is so important for, for improving glucose control is that the muscles are where that, that glucose is disposed. And when you exercise, you're burning off some of that glucose so that they can uptake more. Right. So you basically, you're eating a carbohydrate, also some proteins technically, um, and it, it gets broken down into glucose in the blood. And then that your pancreas says, okay, I'm going to release some insulin and I'm going to, you know, have that insulin help do its job of transporting this glucose out of the blood into various tissues. And our potentially biggest disposal site is a muscle cell. And you know, that is where we can, I'm, I'm my last part is a slight question. When you were saying that like the, it, the muscles, muscle insulin sensitivity becomes so important. Is that because it can be such a, a prominent, important disposal site? Is that why that, yes, that specific yes. tissue sensitivity can be so important? Yeah. Yeah. Because it's an important disposal site. And, and when we don't exercise, um, that, that can lead to the accumulation of some of those fatty acids and, and contribute to that insulin resistance. So res insulin resistance in this context, will stay with the muscle cell would be basically uh, the pancreas releasing insulin to put the glucose from the blood into a muscle cell and it not doing that job well. Yeah. So it, it, what it'll do is these insulin molecules, when they get released by the pancreas, they, they bind to the cells. And so they'll bind to the cells throughout the body. They still bind. But what's happening is when they bind, they're not initiating the action within the cell that they're supposed to typically the insulin will bind to the muscle cell. It'll, it'll send this cascade of signaling where um, there's a transporter called GLUT4 will go and um, basically put itself on the outside of the muscle cell, and that'll help bring the glucose in. And none of this occurs besides the binding when you're insulin resistant. So we know that you know insulin levels go up. So the body, responds, the, the, the body responds to this not working by saying, okay, well, maybe we'll just try more insulin. Yep. You just turn up the signal. I, I, it's, it's like, you know, the, the body is not responding to that signal. So let's turn up the, the level of that signal by putting out more insulin. And when you put out more insulin, um, like we talked about earlier, insulin has other actions throughout the body. So if let's say, for example, you know, other tissues aren't as insulin resistant as the muscle, um, what will happen is they're going to be exposed to higher levels of insulin, which may interfere with different uh, processes or, or lead to other um, negative effects. Like one of the ones that a lot of people are aware of is like very high insulin levels over a period of time can, can contribute to uh, symptoms in, of PCOS and contribute to like hormonal uh, issues that, that lead to PCOS. And that's because this insulin is having effects throughout the body and 
and the pancreas is just trying to put out more in order to dispose of glucose, not, not really the, the, the pancreas isn't paying attention to, you know, all of the different things going on. It's just trying to help get rid of the glucose. Awesome. So good. So I hope, I hope after that people have a decent understanding of like, <laughs> I eat the carb and then eventually what happens. Um, so that's yeah. good. Good. Let's talk about how you would know that you are insulin resistant. I'm sure everyone's listening. Like, okay. I get it. I eat the carb goes into the bloodstream. Insulin gets pumped out and insulin helps put the glucose away. If it doesn't do that, then pancreas says, okay, we'll try turning that signal up and then there's more insulin. But how do I know that I'm insulin resistant or insulin sensitive or my insulin sensitivity status? Yeah. So the easiest thing to do is get a fasting insulin level. And, um, there's an equation called a HOMA IR it's a homeostatic measure of insulin resistance. And you can look that up online and you put in your fasting glucose, your fasting insulin, and it'll give you a number. And that kind of gauges your insulin sensitivity. It's not, it's not a, I mean, it's not a comprehensive uh, analysis of your insulin sensitivity, but it does give an understanding of how much like, for example, um, two people can have a fasting glucose of 85, where one can have an insulin level of two and the other have an insulin level of 20. And this insulin level of 20 is 10 times as much as the other, uh, the other individual. And, and that's just because they're requiring that much more insulin to keep that fasting glucose level at 85. And that can differentiate pretty largely between two individuals who may, on a fasting glucose panel, look like they're perfectly, you know, the same metabolically, but on, on the actual, when they measure insulin, um, it really differentiates between that underlying metabolic status. The other thing, um, HbA1c, the, the just traditional measure for type two diabetes, HbA1c is, is essentially, a, the amount of, um, hemoglobin, which is red blood cells in your, in your blood that are bound by glucose. And that goes up when your when your glucose levels are higher. And if you're insulin resistant after you eat a higher carbohydrate meal, your glucose levels are going to rise to a higher level than an average person and stay at a higher level because your body's having such a hard time getting rid of that uh, that glucose from your bloodstream. So if you're not able to produce massive amounts of insulin, uh, you're going to see rises in HbA1c as well. And so getting into the pre-diabetic range of HbA1c can sometimes give an indication of insulin resistance, but it's not a direct measure. Yeah, my, I'm, I've heard some critique of, first of all, so HbA1c is like a, a, a three-month average blood sugar, marker of like your average blood sugar, let's say, um, a slightly longer term uh, marker for, let's say, insulin sensitivity than just taking a fasting glucose. And the problem potentially with a fasting glucose is that we're not actually looking at how much insulin was needed to get you to that fasting glucose. And that can differ between two different people. It's actually an interesting point. I, I didn't actually know that. Um, is HOMA IR actually uh, on a, like a standard blood check? I haven't been to a doctor in like 10 years. Um, is it, is it HOMA, HOMA IR is um, not they, they don't test it often. Insulin is, uh, fasting insulin is just a little bit pricier of a test, but it's really silly. I mean, you can buy it for like 10 bucks or 20 bucks. Um, but it's, it's just not included in standard, uh, panels because there's no formal diagnosis of insulin resistance. Um, there's no medication that are approved to treat. So they're not, they're not screening for this, but we, when we look at, chronic, uh, you know, chronic disease rates, when we look at risk of cancer, cardiovascular disease, when someone has a higher insulin level, despite when, even when glucose is controlled for that higher insulin level is associated with higher rates of cancer, higher rates of cardiovascular disease, higher rates of Alzheimer's. So 
it, it is a good screening tool, but most doctors aren't using it right now for various reasons. And when we look at medical care, sometimes we have to look at it like there's a system that kind of runs the way things go. Insurance companies aren't going to necessarily pay for a fasting insulin test for your just for your, you know, information. So that's something that sometimes you might have to just pay out of pocket if you're interested in getting that. Um, they sell, like I said, there, there's so many online labs that you can just pay 20, 30 bucks to go get fasting glucose, fasting insulin. I think you can get fasting glucose, insulin, and HbA1c for like 30 or 40 bucks. Yeah, my, my question before we move on to like, how does somebody become insulin resistant is I look at that, I think HbA1c, fasting glucose, like, like, does it paint enough of a picture? Does that give us enough of a clue? You know, there's some people who are like HbA1c. It's it works on an average, so it doesn't talk about the the glucose excursions, and you know, it, it doesn't talk about the spikes and the lows. It just gives you an average. But on the whole, if we're looking at somebody who is like in a fasting glucose range, that's healthy, that's in the normal range. Let's say in an HbA1c, that's in the normal range. Are you ever going to be like, yeah, but maybe? Or are you going to be like, okay, we're going to take these two numbers and look holistically at the individual, what your lifestyle is like, what your exercise routine are like and you know sleep and stress management and some of these other things and we're going to look at it holistically and we're going to make a decision here are you are you like not are you not do you not find those to be sufficient would you recommend people who are going to go to, a, to their doctor and maybe get i feel like hba1c is pretty standard at this point i, I feel yeah. like the blood workups that i've seen for my clients it's always there um but would you recommend to to if those things check out that they should still go seek out more like, oh, what's my insulin level? It might not be fine. Or are you pretty happy? Let's say you have a patient who comes in and those two things check off that are in the normal range and you look at them holistically and their lifestyle is pretty conducive to overall health. Are you still going to push on further? Or are you still feel pretty confident with those markers? Um, depends on the person. Uh, if you're just interested, like, I mean, in insulin level is just an interesting measure. Like it's, it's giving you an indication of how well your body's using insulin which is important for metabolism. So, um, you, if, if someone's insulin resistant, they're most likely going to have a higher HbA1c unless they're eating a lower carb diet. So that's where, um, when you say looking at holistically, like I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say, Hey, we have to get insulin level checked to make sure you're not insulin resistant. I might say, Hey, let's get it out of curiosity. You know, your, your HbA1c is fine, but this is something that can add just more information. The, the other piece that you mentioned, like I said, if you're insulin resistant and you're eating a, a higher carb diet, your HbA1c is going to be higher. Now there are people whose HbA1c is low who are eating a low carb diet and their HbA1c is in the healthy range, but they're still insulin resistant. So there, there's a, there's a, you know, different, different scenarios where, where it would be helpful. Like if I, if someone came to me and they had, you know, borderline HbA1c, you know, 5.6, you know, right on the borderline of prediabetes and they weren't eating any carbs and their fasting glucose was 99 or hundred, um, I'd be a little concerned about that. I, I would want to see insulin level and for myself. Um, so I have a fasting glucose from when I was a kid or not a kid, but like first time I started checking myself when I was doing my PhD, I used to run my glucose all the time. My fasting glucose is always around a hundred. And that seems like that go, it goes into what would be considered the pre-diabetic range. It will go into like, sometimes like 102, 103. And so for me, my HbA1c is normal. Fasting glucose is a little bit high. Um, for me, it was really, I was, I was curious to see my insulin level. My insulin level is like a two. So, um, it's not that, you know, my body's not able to produce enough insulin and I'm insulin resistant. My body's pretty insulin sensitive. Um, 
my glucose just happens to like just sit a little bit higher on the baseline. Um, and again, this is every every case is different. These things are, are, are you know, you got to put them together to, to get a full picture. And insulin is, I think fasting insulin really puts that picture together really well. Um, anything beyond that though, uh, you know, oral glucose tolerance test is another thing that some people can do. Um, most, most women who, um, have gone through pregnancy, have done it. Um, and so that, that's another one that gives more information about the way your body's uh, using glucose, disposing of glucose. And if they're measuring insulin during that time, it'll also give you information about insulin sensitivity as well. But that's, it's, it's a pretty, um, it's a pretty involved test and, and it may not be worth it for, for most people. And same thing, uh, you know, these CGMs that are getting popular, like same thing, like you're literally where you're paying hundreds of dollars to wear something on the back of your, um, on the back of your arm that, you know, is pretty cumbersome. That doesn't add much data to your overall risk profile. Like if your HbA1c is fine, your fasting glucose is fine. Adding in information about, uh, you know, glucose fluctuations on a day-to-day basis, like it is pointless. That's if we had, I, I always say this, like when we get the technology for fasting triglycerides, or, or to, to continuously monitor triglycerides like we do with, with glucose, because triglycerides, if you take a random triglyceride measure, it's associated with cardiovascular disease and other health outcomes. So we can make the same justification for triglycerides. Like when it goes up, that's a bad thing. And, and if someone was wearing a conti- continuous glucose monitor, and then they had, they put on a continuous triglyceride monitor that t- takes everything off the table. Like you yeah. can't even eat because yeah, yeah, yeah. those are natural, you know, that's natural responses to, to food consumption. If you, if you wear a CGM and then what you find out is like, Hmm, I'm going to either consciously or subconsciously shift my eating pattern towards stuff. That's going to make my uh, blood sugar lower on average. What I'm probably doing is increasing fats and what I'm probably doing is going to see <laughs> higher postprandial triglycerides. And then, like you said, you wear both of these things and all of a sudden you're like, well, protein and, and water it is, you know? Like, <laughs> well, and, then, yeah. and then when you look at amino acids, and yeah, those, yeah. Those, yeah. I'm confident there's studies that associate with uh, amino acids circulating in the blood with various health outcomes. It's really too much energy is associated with negative health outcomes. So if we're looking at very high levels of glucose or fats or anything for that matter, um, there's going to be negative health outcomes from that. But that doesn't mean that, you know, the average person needs to be worried about every little uh, fluctuation in glucose. Yeah. And we'll talk a little bit if we have time at the end about the CGM stuff. But I want to get into the question. We're 20 minutes in here. Everyone wants to know is like, how does one become insulin resistant? Is it from eating too many carbohydrates and having, quote, a lot of, let's say, my glucose going up, chronically elevated. Um, it's funny because the word chronically elevated is already being used wrong in that context. But let's say, how does one become insulin resistant? As And is that something that has to do with eating too many carbs? It has nothing to do with carbs. It's energy, overall energy. And actually, saturated fats seem to contribute to insulin resistance within the cell to a greater degree than carbohydrate consumption. So when, when studies... Um, replace even refined carbohydrates for saturated fats, there's an increase in insulin resistance um, because those saturated fats get get t- uh, turned into these lipid metabolites that so that's accumulate a, in the cell. So that's a actually a shift in taking some taking away foods that were spi- first of all, I hate the word spike. I think <laughs> that the, the word spike is 
you if you're if you're a low carb proponent or somebody who would be you know, making an argument that this is all about reducing carbohydrates, you love the word spike because spike has a negative connotation to it. Just like yep. if, we, if you if we took out the word spike and just replaced it with like increase, like all of a sudden people are like, oh, this would be a normal thing. I saw a dude today, and I. I don't know if you follow him. His, uh, I'm not even gonna say his name. I don't want to give him any, any. I don't want anybody going to his page. But uh, he did a TikTok today of him eating a Mission Carb Wrap and testing his blood sugar. And um, P.S. Nobody eats. The first problem with this, I'm gonna do a little stitch on it. But the first problem is nobody eats a wrap by itself. Alone. Like this is like a, yeah. not a real. Doesn't have a lot of external validity here. Like this is not a real world apl applicable study here. Um, he ate a Mission Wrap because it's a, a company that uh, by whatever this was have really low net carbs, whatever. Um, and his blood sugar at two hours was up 31. Oh no, no, sorry. At like one hour was up 31 and at two hours was back at baseline. And as I'm watching the video, I'm like, Oh, that, that looks pretty, looks like a totally normal thing that would happen when somebody, I mean, I, I looked at, I was like, Oh, that's cool. This is normal. sounds like you did great. And immediately like threw the wraps in the garbage and was like, absolutely not. I'm like, dude, this is exactly what your body is meant to do. When you eat carbohydrates, your glucose, <laughs> like your blood sugar went up and then it went down to baseline two hours later and it barely went up at all. Like this to me was like, he, I, I thought for a second he was going to be like, Oh, these are great. And he was like through a fit. And I was just absolutely lost my mind with that. Not really sure what, why I interjected with that point, but I think that, um, you had mentioned that, okay, switching from uh, a carbohydrate to a saturated fat actually had a negative impact. So here we have a circumstance where people were eating less carbohydrates, but becoming more insulin resistant. How is it that um, this misunderstanding came to be? How? What are the arguments that people are making on the other side of this of like, hey, if you eat too many carbs, um, your blood sugar is going to go up, insulin's going to go up, and that's bad. Even you, P.S., and I'll stop rambling in a second, even you a second ago said something, you know, to the effect of elevated insulin over the long term probably isn't good. And so how have people taken that sentence, which I think we would all agree upon, yeah. and broken it down to, well, just don't eat carbs? Yeah, so, so people are conflating transient changes in in insulin and glucose with chronic elevations. So when people say, oh, high glucose levels are bad, they're talking about data that showed information about people who had chronically elevated glucose levels. And that is way different than having like, so having your blood glucose go up to 300 and staying there for three hours and coming down three hours later is substantially different than what you just described where blood glucose goes up from, you know, 80 to 112, there's zero risk involved with that. Your body is like, your body knows how to transport glucose throughout, throughout, for, throughout your tissues for energy it, without killing you. Like <laughs> glucose can go into your system and it's not, it's not going to automatically kill you. It's a problem when it's chronically elevated, when it goes really high for a long period of time. And when it's doing that, it's not, it's not that you're eating too many carbs. It's because your metabolism is not working properly. Your muscles are not getting rid of that glucose properly because you're not active enough. And this is another thing. When I see people use the CGMs, I'm like, imagine if they just like, just ran beforehand. If they just went for like some sprints before they did, did that experiment on one, on one occasion, but not the other, like they're, they're not taking into account other important factors in, um, you know, the, the, the transient changes are really not the issue at all. Like if I eat some white rice and my blood sugar goes up from, you know, 100 to, to 150 and stays there for an hour, that doesn't matter. That's having no negative effect in my body. The, the, the negative effects are seen when 
glucose is high and stays high. And that's not going to happen from, from eating a bagel or eating a wrap or eating a high carbohydrate food that happens when we over consume energy to the point that it starts to accumulate. And, and some people will say, Oh, well, I know people who are not obese who have, um, you know, diabetes and insulin resistance. Um, it's not it accumulating in fat tissue. Like when, when, when that extra energy accumulates in fat tissue, it's not as metabolically harmful as when it accumulates in the liver, like fatty liver, for example, or in the muscles. Um, so that these, these lipid, particles will, will develop in the muscles and the, these lipid metabolites will accumulate and you don't have to be overweight for that to be the case. And insulin sensitivity and insulin resistance actually happens on a, it, it's, it fluctuates. Like if I go and eat 7,000 calories today, I'm going to be more insulin resistant for the next you know 24 hours or so because my cells are full of energy and they're not going to want to take in more energy. So that's going to leave more of the energy circulating in the bloodstream. Um, that insulin resistance is essentially a response to overnutrition. Like for the most, it's like a, a cellular protective mechanism to, to, um, to protect the cells from excess energy from bringing in excess energy, which can, which can be damaging. So, so, Overconsuming food um, and overconsuming energy overall, and it doesn't doesn't matter if it's you know or it you know carbohydrates don't uniquely drive insulin resistance. Fats can as well. It's just overall energy, and then the other piece of it is um, exercise because your insulin sensitivity will increase immediately when you exercise, and what you're doing is you're building more mitochondria when you exercise. You're, you're building up the machinery within your cells that help to break down those fatty acids, help to break down those sugars. And when you build up that machinery, you're, you're basically installing a larger motor into, your, into your, your muscle cells so that they can burn off more energy and bring in more energy from the cell. And that, that's what helps them become like overall more effective and helps to keep you insulin sensitive is when you build up uh, you know, your muscle tissue with, with different types of, of training. Is it rare to see insulin resistance not correlate with, with body fatness, let's say? Like, I'm, I don't want to pin like, okay, you're insulin resistant because you're overweight, you know? Um, they, they, I'm sure they correlate on some level, um, yeah. but do they correlate strongly? And is, is having insulin resistance and not being overweight something you would consider, let's say, rare or just like highly less likely? There's a pretty strong correlation. It's a lot less likely to be lean and insulin resistant, but it can it can happen because of genetics. Um, can also happen from, and I ha we haven't talked about this as much, but more of like overall chronic inflammation within the body can can interfere with insulin signaling. That doesn't happen from like most people aren't just walking around. I know there's this thought process like everyone's inflamed. That's it's just another word that people use to scare you, telling you you have inflammation. Like most people aren't walking around with chronic inflammation, but some like inflammation, stress, you know, some of these underlying factors that, that put a stress on our body physically can also interfere and affect insulin sensitivity in, in leaner individuals. But typically it's going to be, um, it's going to be related to uh, body weight. And then also, um, muscle mass is really important here. So someone who's, you know, quote unquote lean, who, who is at a lower body weight, but has no muscle mass, 
will will have a higher likelihood of becoming insulin resistant versus someone who has more body fat but has a lot more muscle mass. And it's it's just it it leads us to a boring conclusion of like probably don't eat too much energy. Uh, exercise somewhat uh, from a cardiovascular standpoint for those mitochondrial benefits, exercise from a resistance training standpoint for the muscle building and growth and, you know, glucose deposit and sensitivity benefits. And it kind of boils down. I mean, you can correct me and rephrase, but like to some of the same boring stuff that you probably already know to be a healthy person is to exercise, don't have too many calories on average over time, you know, sleep and stress management, stuff like that. Yep. It, it usually does come down to the simple stuff. It's it's not sexy, but um, yeah, that, like that, that really is like combination training it is, you know, a little bit of cardio, especially like a combination with cardio, high, a little bit of high intensity interval training, which can, can be better for glucose disposal. And then a little bit more of like longer duration, moderate intensity uh, aerobic exercise, which can be better for more, uh, more of the mitochondrial benefits and, and fat you know, fat utilization within the cells as well. And so it's really um, utilizing mixed types of training, different, you know, aerobic, high intensity, lower intensity, and resistance training is what's going to be optimal for, for building up insulin or insulin sensitivity. And then on the other end, just not over consuming calories is really the, the main key there. Let's talk a little bit about these acute postprandial glucose excursions is another word that fucking kills me. <laughs> it's like spikes, whatever. So if I am, you know, is there a correlation between how often I eat something that spikes or increases my blood sugar to a degree, which I'm interested what you would say is like a, a number of like, Hey, maybe we, is there a number or a time or an area under the curve that we don't want to see in an acute sense? Like do those, like the way that I've seen it like phrased is like, uh, you know, chronically elevated blood sugar and insulin, let's say both are bad. They've gone in this bad category, but chronically elevated blank is not necessarily an accumulation of acute increases in that thing. Um, if, if it's come, if you're having an, a blood sugar excursion, I'm sure it's more nuanced than this that reaches, if your blood sugar goes up from hundred to one seventy, but then back to, you know, let's, let's say 85 to one to one sixty, and then back down to 85. Like at what point are these, like, is it an accumulation of these blood sugar spikes or is it more a holistic look at the individual? Like how much can we, like people are putting the CGM on cause they're like, Hey, area under the curve of blood sugar increase. I want to keep that down because the more I keep that down, the more chronically elevated of these things is going to be down. Like where's the misunderstanding there? Um, the misunderstanding is that you, you'll just get it from HbA1c. Like HbA1c is basically a three month area under the curve for the most part. It's telling us like average blood sugar level over three months. So, um, you know, if, if you're, if you're having acute you know, spikes that are, that are problematic it and probably comes all up. the time, yeah. it's going to, it's going to show up on HbA1c. And if it's and, and if you're, if you're doing it to the point where you're consuming so much energy that, that you're becoming insulin resistant and, and you're, you know, you're having these fluctuations that are staying high, that that's going to come up on HbA1c. If it doesn't come up on HbA1c, your metabolism is working fine. And, and eating a donut and having your, your blood sugar spike to 250 or 300, but it comes right back down is not a big deal. Now that may lead you to be a little bit more hungry later. And that eating pattern might not be a wise approach. Um, but it's not something that you need to be afraid of that, that it's causing like this irreparable damage the way that, you know, some of these, uh, you know, glucose people on, on, on social media are making it seem right now, like individual 
fluctuations are that's insane that's like that's really i i was like i got obsessed with the glucose monitors like over 10 years ago when they were like a research based you know uh device and we used them in our lab for research and i thought it was incredibly interesting and then also for diabetics who, who really do need to be monitoring this because they have to administer insulin based on their blood glucose responses. But um, for the average person, that's like weighing yourself after every meal and say like that, that really is that silly, like is like, oh, I'm going to weigh myself after every meal and I'm only going to eat meals that cause me to not gain weight when I eat them. Like you would be, you would drive yourself crazy trying to manage your weight fluctuations throughout a 24 hour period. And that's what, like, you're trying to manage a bodily function that's going to fluctuate. It's supposed to fluctuate. And, and that's what people are doing and thinking that, you know, they're, they're benefiting their health in some way because of the way that it's framed. And it's all based on misinformation. Like there's no, if your HBA1C is good, your fasting glucose is good. You're, there's no there's no evidence to show that these minor fluctuations in a metabolically healthy person is an issue. Now the issue is that most people aren't metabolically healthy, but getting metabolically healthy isn't isn't doesn't come down to managing your postprandial glucose spikes. It comes down to the same stuff we talked about just a second ago, where you know metabolic health is going to be improved through various types of exercise. It's going to be improved through managing your overall energy intake, not worrying about never getting your glucose over 200. It's an unbelievable analogy that I've just blown away that I've never heard before. It makes so much sense. We're like, you would never like I a way more everything you'll learn with monitoring acute responses in terms of blood sugar, everything you'll learn with that CGM, you'll know with your long term HbA1c, you it will come up if you're doing something that is leading you towards unhealth, let's say it'll come up in the average over time. And it's the same with like weighing, weighing yourself every meal is obviously ludicrous. I'll, you'll know what's happening to your body weight if you look at longer term averages. You don't need you won't you won't learn nearly as much about what's happening in terms of the trend of your body weight by weighing yourself after every meal. You'll learn way more, or whether you learn more or less could be argued. But you will have to monitor less and get more of a clear picture of what's happening if you just zoomed out and looked at average body weight over time, which is more of an accumulation of your actual habits on the day to day over the long term, which is what's going to drive any of these negative health outcomes anyway. That. That analogy is going to click for a lot of people like is a ludicrous thing. Everybody who's, you know, because there are a lot of people that are are looking at this as like the new thing that I can measure that matters because I don't want to count calories anymore. So I'll just do this as if keeping my postprandial blood sugar down is somehow by itself outside of confounding variables that maybe you stop eating as much, I don't know, ice cream and cake and you've moved to more whole foods and okay, maybe there's a correlation there that it happened to do both of those things. But yeah, that analogy is, is, is pretty kick-ass and for a lot of people who like weigh themselves uh, relatively often or, or are familiar with the concept of just basic weight fluctuations are going to see that that is equally ridiculous. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the, some people still do that though. <laughs> like some people do weigh themselves multiple times a day. And that's when the, that like someone asked me the other day, like, why does my weight change from this day to this day? And I was like, Oh wow. That, that, that's like what people are doing with, with the glucose monitors is just really trying to, it's, it's hypermanaging a, a physiological system that it's, it's meant to fluctuate. It's, it really doesn't make any sense, but it does make sense from a marketing standpoint because 
Um, now someone can sell you this new um, diet that, that works, that keeps your blood sugar down. Then they can sell you a, a device that's going to cost a couple hundred bucks a month that they're going to get 20% off of. So a lot of this stuff mostly gets popular because, you know, it, it's sexy and they can sell it in a sexy way, but um, it's really the financial reasons on why people push this type of stuff. You see so many influencers pushing these glucose monitors because they get offered like 40 or 50 bucks per person. I've gotten emails from the, from the, uh, from one of the glucose monitoring, uh, device companies that, that asked me to promote their product. I'm like, you don't even look at my page. Yeah, like, you must not have actually done your research here. I was, uh, back in 2016, I went, it's funny. It's like we all bounce around and I didn't know a lot. This is big Dunning Kruger moments uh, back in the day, but I went keto for a full year, partially as an experiment. Um, and partially as like a, I made some of these massive misconceptions. I, and I, when I do something and from a data driven perspective, I want, I'm interested. And so it goes beyond like, a, I thought this is important, but I'm more so just interested. And so this was before CGMs. This is me with a, with, um, I forgot what the names of the the like prick monitors were, but I had like three or four of them because I was like, oh, I got to check, you know, some of them are different. And every morning fasting blood sugar with like my finger still has like scars on it because I would do it like three or four times in the morning with like these different machines. And the irony is like mid keto eating literally, I didn't miss a meal on keto for like 11 months. My fasting blood sugar was exactly the same as it is now eating 405. And I'm not using myself as like, a, I don't want to do that in extrapolation. I think I'm a metabolically healthy person who's also active and doing a lot of the right things. But I just, for me and my experience and of one here, it just didn't, didn't really matter. I was the same body weight. Every, all the other factors were the same, except I ate less carbs, more fats. Everything else about my life was the same. HbA1c was the same. Um, fasting blood sugar was actually, honestly, I think it's a, it was a little higher then. Um, and that might've been, you could argue from some form of, I was doing a lot of higher intensity work that I still do now playing soccer and stuff with low carbohydrates, which maybe had some cortisol response maybe, or some other, something was going on, but it just like, it didn't, it didn't help. Like this idea of, I just dropped all my carbohydrates. It didn't fix that stuff by itself if everything else stayed the same. Yeah, yeah. And that's, I mean, that, and the reason, the reason that a lot of people think this works is because when people go on a low carb diet, most people, they're cutting out a bunch of junk food that they were eating before, and they're just eating a whole lot less. And if you just eat a whole lot less for a week, you could go from pretty insulin resistant to insulin sensitive. Like literally in a week, there, there, there was one study where they took bariatric surgery patients and they, they put them on, I think it was like a 700 calorie diet for, for three weeks and their insulin sensitivity pretty much normalized. And these people are incredibly obese. They're still obese after the three weeks but their insulin sensitivity improved dramatically because they were in such a calorie deficit that their, their body was able to get rid of those excess accumulated fatty acids in the cells that allowed the insulin sensitivity to improve. So, um, and this kind of goes back to one of the things I hear so much. Um, number one, that you have to cut out carbs. Number two, that like you can't lose weight if you're insulin resistant. Like yeah, that, let's move to that. that. Yeah. That is such a myth. Like every study that's ever been done with insulin resistant populations have shown weight loss in the same trajectory as, as individuals who aren't insulin resistant. And for some reason, people online are like completely making stuff up around insulin resistance, saying that like you can't lose weight and it, it prevents weight loss um, and all of these different things. And that's that's like that's a complete fairy tale. Like there's no data on that. I think people move goalposts. It starts with, you can't lose weight if you're insulin resistant. 
And then you'll show a couple of studies where people who had insulin resistant and uh, you'll see the same trajectory of weight loss c coming down to energy balance, what you'd expect. Uh, and then they'll move the goalposts and be like, well, okay, you know, but if you do, if you want to lose weight with insulin resistance, it's, you got to go low carb. Okay, okay, okay. Maybe you can lose weight, uh, but you got to go low carb. And so, like, let's talk about this idea of like, hey, I'm maybe I am insulin resistant. Uh, well, let's let's just really curtail to just like kind of put a bow on this. If we're like, hey, we're, I don't want to be insulin resistant. Everyone's listening to the podcast like, all right, they said it's a bad thing. I don't want that to be the case. Like, chances are, if you were to rattle off your top like six things for someone to take away and be like, I don't really want to be insulin resistant. I should probably do these or be these six things. What would they be? I, six is a random number, whatever. Yeah, weight training two days per week, at least on the minimum. Um, and if you're doing two days per week, full body, uh, high intensity interval training, at least one time a week, some type of like something that's going to get you close to your maximum capacity. So soccer, you mentioned that's a really good type of interval training. I play basketball. That's my interval training. Like anything, sprints, swimming, bike. Um, so anything that's going to get you at your highest level of like cardiovascular, uh, output for a short period of time. Um, some type of like lower intensity could be walking, you know, for a longer period of time could be a light jog, depending on what your fitness level is, but something that where you're going to go 30, 45 minutes, um, or longer, at least one time per week too. So if you're doing, you know, at least two days per week of the, of the, um, resistance training, at least one day per week of interval, at least one day per week of like this longer cardio, that's a good baseline place to start. You know, anything beyond that is going to be helpful as well, but that's, you know, going to give you those various types of uh, training uh, stimulus that, that are going to help improve uh, overall insulin sensitivity. Not to cut you off, but on the, on the exercise note, I think it's just important. Like you just the exact point that you just made where we see the benefits of exercise have a, a pretty steeply diminishing return at a certain point. And there's a, certainly like a minimum dose that gives you a maximum return. And it's quite low. You know, if like the benefits of resistance training, the more studies that come out probably diminish after about two days a week, you know, being super mega jacked is not something that's drastically increasing your longevity. Probably having more muscle than you need is probably the opposite to some degree. But yep. um, so what you're saying is like, hey, if again, it's so interesting because I also think we see that with just weight loss. If, you know, we see the dr most drastic benefits that come via weight loss come with like 5%, 5 to 10% weight loss. You know, people can still have obesity, but if they lose 5 to 10% of their weight, that they will see drastically improved health markers, or at least like, you know, drastically in, in like an ROI sense of how much has needed to change. And the same goes for exercise. So that's super cool. If you're, if you added like, you know, if you're doing nothing, you could see big returns by not having to go from zero to hundred, right? Yeah. Yeah. And that, that, you know, that four days a week, 30, you know, 40, 30 or 45 minutes would, would, be enough to really that's where most of the returns are going to come from like anything beyond that is going to be you know maybe not 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 as impactful as what you get from those that that first uh you know baseline level um from there uh managing your energy intake and i say this like um i use the word manage because i don't want to say like cut your calories or anything like that like you don't want to under eat but you don't want to overeat and making sure that you're eating the right amount for your body if you need to lose excess body fat you know like you mentioned the five to ten percent is a is a good range to shoot for if you're trying to do that in order to improve metabolic health then maybe eating a little bit of a deficit if not then you can kind of stay at a maintenance level but just making sure that you're um, not overeating because it's the overeating that really uh, contributes to worsening of insulin resistance um the other piece that, that really can have a benefit is eating, you know, micronutrient rich foods. So I always recommend eating a, a variety of different, uh, you know, fruits and vegetables and nuts and seeds and those type of things. Cause they're going to have fiber. They're going to have micronutrients, these micronutrients, like a lot of, like, for example, there's multiple studies that show that raspberry consumption improves insulin sensitivity 
because these micronutrients just help the cell work a little bit better. And um, so this, this it's like antioxidant nutrients and different things that come in the, in these foods. And that's what we get when we eat a, a colorful diet with lots of different plant foods. And I know the big thing is don't eat any plant foods because uh, they have like anti-nutrients and you. all yeah. this other crap, but like every, every randomized study that's ever been done, every, you know, population study that's ever been done shows benefits from eating more plant foods, more fiber, um, so really incorporating, you know, plenty of those within your diet, making sure that you're eating enough protein uh, for your needs again as well, um, and kind of spreading that throughout the day. One of the things I always um, try to encourage people to do is make sure that you're eating like a set, no not it doesn't have to be the same every day, but like get to get into a schedule of a set number of meals and snacks that are kind of around the same size and that are, that are balanced. Because what a lot of people are doing is, they're just not planning and not eating anything and just eating whatever happens to be, you know, whatever, when you're out and about, like whatever food is available at that time. So really get into a routine of, you know, I eat three meals per day and they're about the same size and they have protein and vegetables and some carbohydrates and, um, getting into that routine, I think can be incredibly helpful in terms of like, overall um lifestyle habit is is i think too many people you know people try to track calories and they try to hit this calorie level without getting into like a routine around it and the routine is what's important then you don't have to track because you know that you have about the same size meal and that's what you need uh, on a regular basis so i highly recommend for those who aren't doing that now it's one of the first things i do with a lot of my clients is like all right let's Let's just make sure that you're having like, you know, around the same meals around the same time on a regular basis. And that actually improves insulin sensitivity when we, when we tend to have our meals around the same time, there's some animal studies that show that when we have sporadic meal times, the body isn't as insulin sensitive during those, during those meals. And another thing that, that there's some data on recently, um, is, not eating late at night, like not eating right before you go to bed. And it's mainly because, um, our body needs the energy during the day. So, um, our body is more insulin sensitive in the morning at lunchtime. And when we eat larger meals at night, that, that tends to be when we're less insulin sensitive. And that seems to potentially have a negative effect on our metabolism. There's been a few studies that have come out over the last five or six years that have shown, negative effects from a pattern. It's not, it's not necessarily eating late at night. It's just a pattern of where you get most of your calories at night versus in the morning and during the day when, when they're going to be more likely to be utilized for energy. So that's another thing that I would recommend. So like trying to shift your meal times, have standard meal times, shift them to, you know, kind of earlier in the day, making sure that you're eating plenty earlier in the day that's the opposite of what most people, like almost everyone I, I've, I've spoken to, worked with. They intermittent fast and then they snack a fucking me metric fuck ton after dinner. Yeah, exactly. And, and that, that pattern, just changing that pattern for, I'm sure a lot of people listening will, will alone have a pretty, pretty substantial effect. Get a good breakfast in, get a good lunch in, get a good dinner in. If you want to snack somewhere, you know, have that, but uh, feed yourself so that you're not starving throughout the day. And, and like you just said, eating a whole shitload after dinner 
And, and that's, that's what really leads to excess energy consumption. That's what leads to, um, your body just not being able to, to process that, that food, uh, because you're going to bed and your body is trying to get ready for sleep. Yeah. I think that you, uh, I want to get to the weight loss stuff, but I love that you had mentioned, listen, uh, it's something I talk about with my clients when they sign on is like tracking calories is what is a tool, whatever. It just helps you be directly uh, accountable for what you're eating, but there's, there needs to be some love. It's so funny because you could eat whatever you want technically and you could hit a certain number of calories and protein and all things equated. Didn't matter how many times you eat when you eat, you probably lose basically the exact same weight. But that isn't a, that isn't a suggestion that you do that. That isn't a suggestion <laughs> that you leave it up to ca- just chaos and random from a day to day. It's, it's, almost, it's almost certain that you could, that's more of something you should understand from a conceptual standpoint and that if layered on top of a routine, it's like one of those things that if, if it's unstructured, but all else equal, it'll be fine, but you'll do way, 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 way better with structure. And you even said some ways that actually it would be different. Um, and so it's funny cause like people, you know, one of the draws of calorie counting is like, a, you know, you could eat whenever and you could eat different food items. And as long as you're ending up in a similar ballpark, it, you know, you'll have similar results. But I think that you, that's more of like something that you should understand from a concept, not something that you should flex as much as possible. Like chances are that should be something where you're like, Oh, I, forgot to pack my lunch, but I have an understanding of energy balance and meal composition that I can get by here. Not a, I'm not going to prepare one fucking thing of food. I'm just going to roll with it whenever I'm out and about. Yeah. Put it all into the app. And then at the end of the day, try to figure out how to make it work. And then you don't build any habits. You're, you're, yeah, that, that approach I think is the biggest downfall for a lot of people tracking calories is they're, they're tracking and they're not putting a routine and then tracking on top of that to, to check their routine and make sure their routine is giving them what they need. That's the, the key is getting into a routine that gives you what you need and then using the calorie counting to, to make sure that you're in that routine. Awesome. Let's, let's address a, just a fundamental question. Well, before we go, just really quick, before we get into that, it's like, um, if there, you had mentioned some things about just like, let's say chrono nutrition of like when you're eating, what times of the day you're eating, that sort of stuff. If you're a if you're listening to this and you're already like a person who's like exercising regularly, you don't have too much body weight, you sleep well, you all your blood work is checked out. I don't want you guys to like flip your entire eating schedule where you're like, well, Adrian said I can't eat at night anymore ever. Like <laughs> these are the things you can do if you, your goal is to work on that. And it's likely, and you correct me if I'm wrong, but I just, it's, if you're all, I just don't want, and I know you don't want this either. I don't want people that are already uh, living a very happy, healthy, metabolically healthy enjoyable life that they are living to then add on things that they now need to also be stressed about. These are like, not that you shouldn't be preventative with your strategies, not that you shouldn't have foresight and be like, Hey, I want to do these, some of these things. But, um, you know, if everything's always been in check and you're a happy, healthy person with a good routine, you're doing a lot of things that we talked about. Like let's not, uh, you don't necessarily need to yeah, have it's, such a it's high a emotional few, response it's to a, that. Yeah. It's a sm- small percentage improvement that you would gain from that where, you know, the lifestyle trade-off isn't worth it for most people. Um, but if you're, if you are the type that, and, and the reason that I mention that oftentimes is because I know that so many people are doing what you mentioned fasting until they're just starving and then eating so much in the afternoon. Yep. So really, framing it as eating more food in the morning will improve your insulin sensitivity will kind of get people's attention and, and help them to you know prioritize that a little bit more love that let's talk about people who currently do have insulin resistance you've done a test you maybe you're like hey i don't exercise and you know i have a bit more excess body weight and i went to the doctor and i got my home ir i did my my hbo and c i'm i'm insulin resistant and my doctor tells me 
and not to pick on doctors, just like an experience I've had with clients, like that might happen. And like, okay, well you should go low carb to fix this. Like is low carb a strategy that it has inherent benefits for improving insulin resistance in the context of weight loss? Like, am I going to lose less weight? If I have insulin resistance, people, I think it's a, it's a very easy thing for people to understand that I put in quotes because I, I think it's mostly incorrect, but you're going to guide us through that. It's like, well, if I'm insulin resistant, that means I like don't quote handle carbs well or some other nebulous term. And thus I should eat less of them. And that's going to be the root for me via weight loss. Because if I ate carbs, I don't handle them well. And thus I wouldn't be in a deficit or I wouldn't lose weight because I'm eating something I don't handle well. And it becomes this thing that most people don't even understand what they're saying at some point. So if I'm insulin resistant, I have insulin resistance. Is going carb something that's inherently better? Am I going to do better going lower carb? or is that a strategy like everything else and is it somewhere in between uh, the, you're not going to do any better um as opposed like if you, same calories equated you're not going to do better on low carb versus uh you know higher carb and you're actually probably going to do worse if you're replacing carbohydrates for you know butter and other saturated fat sources so no there's there's really no evidence for that some people just just do better like like we mentioned earlier they just uh, they might prefer a lower carb diet. And then also it's that low carb just creates these um, arbitrary restrictions or, or that, that help people to avoid certain things that, you know, you should be avoiding anyway. So people say, oh, I'm cutting out carbs and they cut out cookies, cakes, and, you know, and candies. Foods and that are like usually that. higher in fat anyway. Like, yeah. So they're, they're cutting out, um, more processed foods is typically what's happening because most processed foods are going to have carbs and fat in them. If you said you're going to cut out fats, you would have the same, you would have to cut out some of the, you know, if you say I'm cutting out all added fats, then you'd have to cut out chips and crackers and cakes and all of that other stuff. And it would lead to the same effect where you're avoiding some things that probably aren't that best in terms of a source of nutrition. So that that's where, you know, there's so many anecdotes around it because it's mainly due to the fact that, people are just avoiding um, energy dense processed foods when they cut out carbohydrates. And they're, they're typically in, and you'll see the people that don't have a success on a low carb diet is because they're, they're doing all of these keto bomb snacks and stuff like that, where uh, they end up consuming as much or more energy. They're doing ribeyes with butter because they're, they're just having so much energy um, and, and they don't lose weight. I can't tell you how many people I've known so many people who have who are chronically on low carb diets and they lose the initial weight and then they stay, you know, at that level for, for a long period of time. And there's no additional weight loss beyond that because they're not paying attention to calories. So, um, it comes down to calories when, when, when we talk about improving insulin sensitivity, it doesn't matter. Um, if you're going high or low carb, you know, you want to make sure that you're eating enough protein and then outside of that personal preference and what you can stick to what you enjoy is going to be much more important than, uh, restricting one macronutrient or the other. I find it to be an, not a scenario. I think it would be too hyperbolic to say that insulin resistance or focusing on it doesn't matter at all. But it, it seems to me to be a reverse logic here of like, I need to address my insulin resistance. Now you need to address you know, the habits in your life that caused you to become insulin resistant. And you probably need to do those in ways that are very sustainable for you. Um, and so it's, it's like, okay, well, I'm, I'm overweight and I'm insulin resistant. So I need to attack my insulin resistance by lowering carbohydrate, which is already you're, you've already gone wrong there. Instead of just saying, okay, maybe maybe some reduction in body weight would help my insulin resistant in that direction, and maybe just kind of a flow chart. It's like once I've chosen that option, now I can have a I have a multitude of ways that probably boils down to, like you said, um, you know, eating a lot of colorful fruits and vegetables, and basically having a 
a method of weight loss that I can sustain and enjoy that is built on some good foundational habits, that will in turn make my insulin sensitivity better instead of saying, oh, I'm insulin sensitive, I have to t attack it by doing X, Y, and Z. I, I almost feel like it's very rare that I almost never with a, with a non-diabetic that it should be something that you, and maybe you can, maybe you can give some, not that I'm wrong, but it, my brain is like, it's almost something I don't want people to be thinking about. I want you guys to be focused more on being metabolically healthy people, doing the fucking things that you already know. If you had to list the 10 things that makes a person healthy, all of us know what those are. And doing those things is where I want to see more people put their effort, not on like, I need to wear CGM. So I got to think about that. Think about like these 10 huge rocks that we need to be healthy. And what you are doing is looking at just absolute microscopic postprandial glucose responses. Like we have so much bigger fish to fry when it comes to being a healthy person. Like, are there, is that similarly to the opinion that you've had in terms of like, yeah, I go ahead. I fully agree with you when you say it doesn't matter at all. Like I, it, it frustrates me that people, um, people are using this as a marketing term, because like I said, I studied it during my PhD, you know, um, it's, it's an important term to understand metabolism. And, uh, when we look at like, from a scientific standpoint, when we look at insulin resistance, you know, this is just a, a epidemic of, of poor metabolic health. And, um, the way that it's used though in, in on social media and marketing is, you know, say insulin resistance. And then you tell people, Hey, you're insulin resistant. So, and, and then you give people these random symptoms. Oh, do you crave carbs? Of course, most of us do like that. That doesn't make you insulin resistant. So people, people on, on social media will market and, you know, use these random symptoms and say, if you get tired after meals, <laughs> yeah. do you, yeah. um, do you get tired after meals? Are you hangry? Do you crave carbs? Like, well, you're insulin resistant. So you need this special program that I have. And that makes you listen to me. That's going to make make you more likely to listen to what I have to say when I market it in that way. And we have to just really pay attention. If you're listening to the this show, you know, you have to really pay attention to, um, when things are being marketed as a special solution, because, uh, oftentimes getting the, it really comes down to getting more consistent with the 10 things that you can list. Um, that is truly where most people are going to benefit the most with their health is just getting more consistent with the stuff that you know, you're supposed to be doing. Um, but you can be distracted for the rest of your life. And many people are pretty much everyone I work with It's you know, they've, five, 10, 15 years of just doing all sorts of random diets, because there's always someone who's going to be willing to sell you this next magic solution. And right now it's insulin resistance or hormone balancing or, um, gut healing. And, and those are like three of the main marketing messages, but in, in five years, it's going to be something else. And you gotta, you gotta really arm yourself against these type of marketing, uh, messages because they're, they can be really attractive. If you don't have a background in science, insulin resistance sounds like a scary thing. And, and, um, someone can make it sound very, uh, very legitimate by, by talking about it in a, in a somewhat scientific way. But the reality is that, like you said, it doesn't matter. Like it really doesn't matter. Like it, it metabolic health, um, you being insulin resistant is like if you are is just a consequence of overall poor metabolic health and the metabolic health needs to be improved. And when that's improved, insulin sensitivity will also improve. It's not something that you need to specifically worry or think about or focus on or try to do special, you know, any special approaches for.
Excellent. I'm gonna we're gonna end it on that because I love that. I loved how you put that and couldn't agree more. So I'd love to have you on. Maybe we'll do like a gut health uh, episode in the future because I feel like there's a similar like anti charlatan um, kind of thread that will go on there as well. Why don't you tell people where they can follow? They should definitely give you a follow on Instagram or anywhere else that you're putting out content. Yeah. So uh, Instagram at Dr. Dr. Period Adrian Period Chavez is where you find me. I'm sure you'll put a link in the show notes for that. If you just type in Dr. Adrian Chavez, I'll show up. Uh, somewhere on there um, in the search. So you can find me there. That's probably the place where I'm putting out the most content. I also have a podcast called the Science of Nutrition Podcast where I will be putting out more uh, episodes here in the near future. And, uh, you know, those are the main places. Awesome, man. I didn't know you had a podcast, so you should probably post more on that, man. You do extremely well. I I had a, I I grew it pretty large a couple of years ago in the pandemic, like having kids home and just messed it up, but I will like, I'm, I'm getting back to it. (laughs) All right. Sounds good, man. I'll put all that stuff in the show notes for sure. Thanks for coming on, man. Thanks you all for tuning in to that episode of the nutrition science podcast with my friend, Jordan lips at the, where optimal meets practical podcast. I hope this was interesting and informative. And if you enjoyed this episode, if you're enjoying the podcast overall and you want to support the show, leaving a review on iTunes or wherever you listen to the show would be very helpful. Or if you wanted to support the show financially, you can leave a donation through our PayPal donation link, which you can find in the show notes. Again, thank you all for tuning in to this episode of the Nutrition Science Podcast. I hope it was helpful and valuable and we'll talk soon. 